This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to talk to you today about what I think is Thomas's most innovative contribution to the history of Christian and specifically Catholic moral theology, that is, the, his account of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's that same account that you'll find enshrined very clearly in the Catholic Catechism. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to Thomas, and the tradition more generally, are like virtues. They're habitual dispositions, but they're not virtues. They're something else. And he says that they're absolutely necessary for a life lived in pursuit of the living God. Before I get into the, the, the substance of the talk, and today we'll be specifically discussing one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, namely the gift of wisdom, I want to just put this in context for you. I want to give a little context. And the way I want to do that is by... Is Echoing back to you some of the things I've heard you say over the last couple of days. So, what are you doing here? Well, yesterday, and I think later today, we'll be discussing practical advice on how to best carry out the mission of the Thomistic Institute. And yesterday, I heard you swapping stories about your successes and your failures, your joys, your heartaches, uh, trading stories about what works and what doesn't work. What is this? You've been gathering together to share wise counsel, to sharpen one another's thinking, and to exhort and encourage one another. It's a practical exercise, a pursuit of practical wisdom, a, an effort to, to judge, to make sense of the activities of the Thomistic Institute and the persons that you're hoping to bring into contact with those activities and the institutional context in which you're hoping to make all this happen. It's not easy. <clears throat> While I was listening to you swap stories, I was hearing, though, not simply... Uh, the exchange of practical bits of know-how. If you listen closely to your peers, you could hear both joy and some heartache. You could hear some stories of sorrow, of flyers being posted all over campus only to be ripped down, of pouring yourself amid, every, amid all of your studies and other responsibilities and the just the anxieties and pressures of, of youth, pouring yourself into organizing events only to have two, three people show up, no one show up, the speaker may not get there, he doesn't get there, he does get there but doesn't have anything prepared to say, oh no. I, hear, I heard twinges of, of, a, of a certain kind of fear or trepidation, you know, how is it that the work of the Thomistic Institute 
the work that you're engaged in, how can it be carried out on these college campuses where uh, there are various degrees and increasingly so um, a, a kind of hostility or um, ambivalence or just um, callous indifference to the proclamation of the gospel. You hear little stories of, of despair, people speaking out of their, their woe, but trying to encourage others. This is what happened, but don't let that, don't let that bother you. Here's how to make it through. Okay, so here's the question. How are you going to keep going? How are you going to do this? Well, I have a couple of ideas. First is um, to understand what you're doing in the context of a larger story. And the second thought is to ask a very Thomistic question about the qualities, the capacities of character, the habitual dispositions, the virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are necessary for living this story now. What's that story? Okay, so I'm going to blast through this part, but you remember that Jesus is alive. Yeah, he's alive. <laughs> The risen, he's the risen Lord, firstborn of all creation, the son of the living God, and he's alive. And he has bought us with his blood. And he's commissioned us, all of you, me and you, and many others besides, to declare the news of his resurrection. And since the beginning of the church, since the outset of that initial gathering of those ragtag, bad news bears, young, unprepared people uh, who gathered around this, this proclamation, there have been lots of twists and turns, but there have always been, in every age, young people like you who've gathered together, have come from far and wide to ask, what does this mean? gospel require of us, how can we make it known where we are? Uh, one man who has contributed uh, quite a lot to the specific way in which we're carrying out that proclamation today is St. Dominic. And let me just tell you a couple of things, give you a bit of context about um, the conditions in which St. Dominic founded the Dominican Order, the Order of Preachers. All right, so now see, some of this sounds a little familiar. First, there's, in Western Europe, rampant unbelief. Rampant unbelief. Think about this. Beginning of the 13th century, the Iberian Peninsula is just recovering from a sequence of Moorish caliphates. It's a frontier once more. It's an open question whether and how the church 
will um, be a lived presence in, on the Iberian Peninsula. And there have been generations of faithful Christians amid upheaval and war and pestilence, praying, urgently praying, that the Lord would send men like Dominic, and he did. In France, you had uh, what's, what was called uh, Catharism, uh, which wasn't simply in France, but it was especially concentrated in France. It's estimated uh, that anywhere from one-half to two-thirds of the French were at this time Cathar. What's that? Well, if you're a Cathar, you are the adherent of a of a heretical doctrine that's made its way probably the beginning of the 11th century from Babylon, the, not, that's not a metaphor, from the actual city of Babylon. It's a dualistic heresy that says the God of the Bible isn't God, but is Satan. That the true God is, is some hidden Gnostic uh, other, and um, the, your goal, um, you are a spiritual creature according to this doctrine, and, and what you need is to be united with the, the, the hidden truth of God's true identity and to be liberated from your body. That sound familiar? To be, to be free from... So there's a little true hidden self inside everyone. And, and this flesh, this body, it, there, it, there's a fundamental mismatch between you that, or that body and the real you. And what, what, what the Cathars want to teach you is how to get free from it. And they call themselves Christians. In Italy and beyond, there's, there are these political shifts. There's, there are... Um, there are ups and downs. Um, in the cities uh, of, of Western Europe, we have... Um, <clears throat> I hope that bell is... You're not going to ring that bell as soon as I say something wrong. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> False. Okay. <laughs> you have... Um, at the same, all, as all this is happening, you have um, the advent of, of unprecedented wealth. It's possible for the first time, really, in the history of Western Europe to be a, a middle-class person, to become upwardly mobile. So in previous centuries, the knight, to be a knight, to be a noble, was a very, uh, was a, was a very particular thing. And, it was, and the notion of chivalric order was being, the doors were flung open to people from, from lower classes. And it was possible, you know, for the first time, you didn't have, it would be like, you didn't have to be the wealthiest person to go to Princeton or Yale or Harvard. You could come from anywhere. You could come from anywhere and find your place in, a, in one of these cities. You could be a merchant. You could flee the, your feudal past. And um, with the advent of cities and wealth and the intoxicating allure of of prestige and power, you have new problems, you have new loneliness, you have um, an er an anonymous class of 
urban city dwellers whose hearts are aching for the truth. And you have these young people flocking from everywhere to these new universities. They're new. They're looking to become, to make something of themselves. And in the midst of all this, uh, a man, kind of like Melchizedek, kind of it's, uh, wanders into these cities out of nowhere. He's penniless, he's barefoot, and he's been preaching the gospel in the French countryside for 10 years. And the very moment where, uh, when there's a kind of unprecedented captivation with the things of this world, young people begin flocking to this man, men and women. And um, to borrow a phrase, they, in a very different sense, tune in and drop out. Give away everything. Take vows of poverty, vows of chastity. And they lend their, all of their lived time and all their power to the proclamation of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And around these young men and women, friars and nuns, you have cooperators, lay people who um, are drawn into the orbit of the Dominican charism. And that's you. You're like those people. That's what we're doing here. We are, uh, we are cooperating in the mission of Jesus' great commission. And we are doing this but, uh, as we beg for the prayers of St. Dominic. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas himself was doing. This is what his work was about. This is who, who he, these are the people he wrote his books for. This is, when, when it comes to the, his moral theology, that long sequence of questions you find in the second part of the Summa, these are questions and answers to questions that are emerging from this mission among these people at this time. And... What I'm suggesting is to keep going is to find yourself in that story because that's where we are. Now a question emerges. How do you um, continue in this story? What kind of person must you be? What must God do to you? How must you be transformed by the Spirit in the sacramental life of the church in order to carry on the work of the Thomistic Institute, to carry on the work of proclamation. Um, putting the question that way brings into relief the pertinence of Thomas's account of the gifts of the Holy Spirit because what he says, what Thomas says is that you could have all the virtues needed in order to live a good human life, even 
the infused virtues necessary for living a life ordered to God, your supernatural end. And even if you had all those virtues in the highest degree, you would still be radically insufficient for living that kind of life without something else. And that something else that we're going to talk about here are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to Thomas, are like virtues. They're habitual dispositions. They're perfections of a human being. They make you and your work good. But they are distinct from the virtues. Here's how. Um, think, I th- most, so let me back up. The most perspicacious way of explaining this will be by talking for one second about what a moral virtue is, what it does. Moral virtue goes in your will, perfects it. To say that it perfects your will is to say that it perfects the rational, desiring part of your person. What does that mean? It perfects that part of you, the desiring part of you, the thinking, feeling part of you, by making your will obedient to reason. So, um, in this life, in your life now, there are, you will encounter difficulty and Often, those difficulties, almost invariably, those difficulties will be connected with things that are exceedingly good. So, like, you can't get the good thing, you can't do the good thing, pursue the good thing, without encountering that difficulty. And and you're both drawn to this good thing, look at us, that's what you're here for now, that good thing, but there are obstacles, there are difficulties, and so you need a set of virtues, of moral virtues, in order to stabilize your, um, the part of you that wishes to flee from difficulty, to make that part of you um, obedient to reason, okay? That's what a moral virtue does. That's true in the case of temperance, justice, the virtues annexed to them. All right, what a gift of the Holy Spirit does is it makes your will and intellect obedient not to your own judgments, but to the judgments of the Holy Spirit. As Thomas puts it, gifts of the Holy Spirit are perfections that make a human being promptly movable by divine inspiration. All right. Now, uh, I'm just going to register this with you now. Uh, You won't see the importance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit unless you can grant that there is such thing as divine prompting. I mean that, and here I'm going to use analogical speech, but that's, as we discussed yesterday, that's the best we've got. Uh, What I mean is, God speaks to you. God urges you. God prompts you. God um, um, suggests 
courses of action to you. And God does this in many and various ways, some more subtle uh, than others. But in any case, this is true. Thomas's thought is that in order to be obedient to, in order to be promptly responsive to those promptings, we need habits. We need to be habitually disposed in a way that, that allows us to respond appropriately to the, uh, God's leading. That's what the gifts do. It makes a man, as he says here, follow well his promptings. Now, why do you need that? Why aren't the virtues enough? And uh, let's, just, let's just say, let's just put this out there. I think a lot of us would like it better if the virtues were enough. And the reason for this is because we want to be self-sufficient. We want to do things on our own. And some of this is perfectly innocent. I have, a, I have little kids. They, they're constantly wanting to, you know, swing out of their, uh, their weight class. You know, they're, I can do it. I can do it. That's how we are. But it's not entirely innocent. We want to be in control. We want to be self-sufficient. We know that we need God's grace in order to live a life God's calling us to, but we often prefer, I think, that God would give us those graces, give us those virtues, that he would renew those virtues and the sacraments and strengthen them and then send us on our way. But that's, that's not how it works. Or even with the virtues, we are insufficient. And Thomas gives us a couple reasons here why. First has to do with the, the infinite interval between God, our supernatural end, and the, the limits of human reason. We are ordered to God as an end unknown. In this life, we can know that God is love, but we can't, as we discussed yesterday, uh, know in what way these um, utterances are true. We cling to them in faith by God's grace. So if you look here at this quote, um, but with respect to man's ultimate and supernatural end, toward which reason moves according as it is in some way imperfectly informed by the theological virtues, the movement of reason does not suffice unless it's helped by the prompting and movement of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so then beyond that, there's just the fact of our fragility and the enduring effects of the fall in our lives. Thomas says that human reason, this is the case quite apart from our um, proclivities, human reason does not know all things nor all possible things, and this is the case regardless of whether it be taken as perfected by natural perfection or as perfected by the theological virtues. Hence, it, human reason, is not able to avoid folly and other defects of this sort in every respect. 
However, God, whose knowledge and power all things are subject by his motion, protects us from all folly, ignorance, dullness of mind, and hardness of heart, and various other defects. And that's why the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which make us follow well his promptings, are said to be given as remedies to these defects. So we can, we can gather here together this week, we can deliberate about how best to do the work that God's given us to do um, on um, our university campuses. But there will be challenges, there will be difficulties that even the most um, stepwise deliberators will not be able to countenance. And there will be times when you will need, um, in addition to, uh, not instead of, but in addition to being led by um, good counsel, you will need to be led by God's prompting. And one of the gifts that has to do with that is the gift of wisdom. We're going to talk about that now. What's the gift of wisdom? So the gift of wisdom, you understand, is, what I'm talking about here, is something distinct from the what are sometimes called the gifts or the charisms or graces enumerated by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay? These are, um, these are distinct from those. The gift of wisdom, like the gift of counsel, the gift of knowledge, and so forth, um, are not charisms, which we can talk about. What, what does the gift of wisdom do? Well, Thomas says that it has two acts. Two things that it enables. First is, the gift of wisdom enables the contemplation of divine things, of, of God and the things of God. Secondarily, and on this basis, wisdom enables one to judge human things by divine things, directing human acts by divine rules, as Thomas puts it. And what's that mean? What's a divine rule? Well, in this context, now I'm speaking to you here from the 45th question of the Secunda Secundae. In this context, divine rules are or regulas are described as being interchangeable with divine reasons, rationes. And that word ratio, if you've been reading some Thomas, you'll notice it's one of these multi-tool words, you know, like a Swiss army knife, it has just all these functions. It's a knife, it's a magnifying glass, it's a toothpick. Right. The word ratio in Thomas's works uh, does a lot of work in different contexts. In this context, the word ratio means an aspect, a specific way in which something can be considered. It's a vantage. It's a point of view. So to see something, for example, under the ratio of good is to cognize it, to apprehend it, to understand it um, as being desirable in some way. 
But to step back and to look at this very same thing under a different aspect would be to see that despite its goodness as such, in some context with respect to some circumstances, it's not perfectly good. It also bears the ratio of evil, of something to be avoided. And part of what it means for you to be rational is that you can, as Thomas says, collate different ratio. You can see things under, in different ways. You can moderate, modulate your, the perspective you take on something. You're very different in this respect, say, from a sheep. Sheep sees a wolf. The sheep, what does it do? It runs. Full stop. There's no deliberation. There's no consideration. Well, you know, this might be a friendly wolf. Uh, now look, I expect most of us would run from a, from a wolf also. But it's um, not out of necessity, you see. Um, when I was growing up, there, were a movie, there was a movie by Kevin Costner called Dances with Wolves. You can't dance with wolves. It's not a necessity of your nature that you flee from them. You can see, come to see a wolf by some training or exercise under a very different ratio. So when Thomas says here that the gift of wisdom enables one to judge things by divine rationis, what he's saying is it enables us to come to see things, ourselves, one another, the world, in which we live under divine, a divine aspect, to see things as God sees them. And that's a good question to ask as you're deliberating about what to do this year. You know, what, what does God think about the University of Arizona? Question. Yeah. Um, the University of Georgia, go dogs. Uh, what's, what's the Lord think, what does he think about it, about what's going on there? What is the Lord doing there? And how, how are we meant to be involved in that work, in that way of seeing? The gift of wisdom is the gift that God gives you in order to do that seeing. And, and then to do the kind of ordering Thank you. Uh, that follows in the wake of that. Now, how does that happen? How, Thomas wants you to ask now, how is it that you come to see things by the gift of wisdom as God sees them? Now, this is really cool. This is one of the coolest things uh, in Thomas's entire work. This is an insight. It's not mine. It's his. Here's his answer. You come to see things as God sees them. By falling in love with God. By becoming completely enchanted with God's own goodness. And the way Thomas is going to explain this, apart from the... The, the, you know, these metaphysical and moral discussions of the infusion of charity, he'll explain it psychologically with respect to the ordinary logic of love 
in our lives. Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> Start here. First, Thomas says, look, wisdom, the gift of wisdom, judges divine things on account of a kind of co-naturality with divine things. Now that word co-naturality comes from the Latin co-naturalitas. It's really hard to get into English. It's a terrible transliteration. I'm just going to stick with it. What does it mean? What's, what is a co-naturality? It's not you know, the latest, greatest indie rock band, which I think would be a fine name for a indie rock band, co-naturalitas. That's free. You can have that one. <laughs> okay, well, no, co-naturalitas here, it means a kind of sympathy, a compassion, a co-suffering through a kind of union with God. What? Well, how about this? First, remember that charity, the love of God, shed, as St. Paul says, that's shed abroad in our hearts, you know, poured into us by God, renewed and strengthened in the sacraments by God's grace. This charity is not just a virtue, it's a kind of friendship. Indeed, it's the friendship by which every other friendship is measured. <clears throat> and when someone comes to love another with the love of friendship, the kind of love ingredient and charity, he wills good to that other just as he wills good to himself. You know, if you have friends, and I hope you do, you know this. That's what it means to be a friend, is to will your friend good just as you will it to yourself. So much so, in the cases of the best kinds of friendship, that you come to see your friend as another self. So Augustine will say, well, did one say to his friend, you are half of my soul. You will the good of another just as you will your own good. And this, Thomas sees, entails a kind of extension beyond the immediate ambit of that friendship. Watch, he says. Friendship extends from oneself to another in two ways. In one way, from one's own point of vantage, and in this way, it never extends to anyone but to one's friend. But in another way, I'm quoting, it extends to someone from the vantage of another person. For example, if someone has friendship toward a particular person, for this reason he loves everyone who belongs to him, whether it's his children or his servants, anyone who belongs to him in any way. And his love for his friend can be so great that because of his friend, he loves those who are connected to him, even if they offend or hate him. All right. You're, most of you, I think, are too young to have children, but soon, you will, your friends, there's going to be this season of life where you're just going to be flying all over the country because everyone's getting married, and then everyone's going to start having kids. And then, you're going to discover this weird thing that happens. You have friends who you love, who have children who you kind of don't love. <laughs> you know, it's like, how many times can someone, a little kid throw a football in your face? You know, before you just flip out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, 
Rhetorical question. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, there is something about our love when it's real and, and, and good that extends not only to those we love, but to those whom our beloveds love. You have this little baby. I don't know why, but I love this little baby. There's nothing great about the baby. The baby doesn't do anything. Why, why do I love the baby? Because it's yours. And I expect whatever that baby, whoever that baby comes to love, I'll love him or her too. And that's the way love works. And Thomas says, it's just like that in, with charity. We come to love God. Come to regard God as a friend, as another self. And we come to love all those whom God loves. And that means even those people who are tearing down your fires. Even the people who, um, who come to your events to make trouble. Even your classmates who, um, who, who would not tolerate um, in-class discussion of the things that you hold most dear. God loves them. And what the gift of wisdom does, by allowing us to see things by, as Thomas says, divine rationis, to see things as God sees them, and as we grow in this gift, we come to see others not simply as um, anonymous university students, not simply as opponents, but as children of God. And that changes everything. And that's what made St. Dominic St. Dominic. He wept over the cities in which he preached. Charity, as Thomas says, it makes us will what God wills. It makes us rejoice in the things that God rejoices in. It makes us grieve over things that, grieve God, uh, that God grieves. How's this so? Well, it just works the way that your other friendships do, but in a but in a better and higher way. I mean, don't you rejoice over your friends' successes? Don't you mourn their losses? Don't you feel them as those as if those losses were your losses? Don't you hurt with them? The gift of wisdom is a gift that God gives us that draws us deeper into God's joy and God's mercy. Changes us like that. And it makes us so that we can see things as God sees them. This conaturalitas, this sympathy, this union, says Thomas, it obtains by the Holy Spirit, specifically by divine inspiration, by prompting by being moved in a certain way. It's not the outcome of a long process of deliberation. I mean, think about how strange that would be. There's this problem in contemporary analytic philosophy called the problem of having one thought too many. It would be the kind of problem where, say, there are two people, this is a, one of those ridiculous um, but illustrative analogies that you'll encounter in your philosophy courses. Okay, so suppose there are, are two equidistant lakes Someone's drowning in both. One person's drowning in one, one person's drowning in the other. And um, one of those persons is your spouse. And 
the question that's put, or that was put by, um, by some analytical philosophers uh, several decades ago is, what are the reasons that one would uh, entertain in order to adjudicate which of these persons to save? And then uh, uh, another philosopher um, came along and said, wouldn't it be odd if you had to think about it? I mean, there's a problem of having one thought too many. You know, the fact that you're having to, to ask yourself, hmm, what should, should I do? Save my wife or this other person indicates that there's something that's not right um, in your thinking. Um, there's a, there ought to be, this point of view says, a kind of intuitive grasp of what one ought to do and those where the reasons of love are, are given to us, not by a long chain of reasoning, but by, through a kind of sympathy, kind of identification with the beloved. All right, last thing to say. And it, it's, it, it, the last thing I have to say is just really simple. I and mean, we can have some questions and answers and talk about all this. First thing to say is, look, um, you can resist the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You can. You ought not, but you can. And uh, Thomas talks about this in the commentary on 1 Thessalonians when he's glossing Paul's admonition. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. What does he say? When somebody wishes to do something generous from the impulse of the Holy Spirit, or even when some generous inclination arises and the person impedes it, he extinguishes the Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about, says Thomas. That's possible. But it's not necessary. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are those capacities, those dispositions that God gives us in order to heed God's promptings to see things as God sees them, to do things um, that God would have us do. And you can see this already in his first work, Theology, the commentary on Isaiah, where Isaiah says, the Lord has given me a learned tongue. What's it for? To uphold the weary. The Lord's given you a learned tongue to uphold the weary. And Isaiah says, and I have not resisted. I've not gone back. According to Thomas, we find here in this passage an, an example of wisdom, of heeding God's promptings. And I just commend that to you today and uh, for the rest of the week as you think about these things together. Thank you. Thank you for your great talk. Um, I was wondering if you could either clarify or somewhat how make a distinction between like these gifts of the Holy Spirit and then like an equation of grace? Do the gifts of the Holy Spirit come through grace? Or are they separate from grace? Or is that kind of like a whole? Yeah, okay. You're... Can I take this? Like this? Okay. Good question. So I will answer that question in the most Thomistic metaphysical and theological register first. And then if that's not your question, I'll answer it differently. 
Grace is something that God infuses into the essence of the soul. It overflows into the powers of the soul. Uh, God, in addition to grace, God gives uh, us, specifically with respect to our intellect and our will, habits by which we can live uh, life in pursuit of God, our supernatural end. Those are those habits can be distinguished. Um, uh, or, or divided into. Some of them are virtues, and then there are other divisions there. Some of them are gifts. Today I was talking about the gifts. Okay? Um, I also mentioned charisms, and I was only mentioning them today in order to distinguish them from the gifts. They, they're that, it's an interesting kind of quality for which Thomas has to actually invent a word. We can leave that aside. But does that answer your question, or are you asking me something else? That answers the question, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hello? Okay. Um, the mentioned that the gifts are available to everybody. Yes. Um, and then in the last part, you mentioned that it is possible to quench the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, so does that suggest that those people who do not participate in... Um, the faith or like the divine life that is through their own fault? Okay. Every time... So I'll give you an example from Thomas's work. This is... This is a... It's pretty fun. This is, not a lot of Aquinas scholars pay much attention to this text, but Thomas writes this treatise on, um, on perfection. Um, and he writes it for his fellow friars. And there he's responding to critics who say, look, you guys, you friars, you're, you're pulling in all these young bucks into the order, and they're not ready. They haven't even followed, they don't even know how to follow the commands. How are they going to follow the council? How are they going to endure the rigors of life? You're corrupting the city's youth. It's, it's, it's a reference to play. Okay, so um, I can't help it, okay? I, but... Um, Thomas responds and says, no, that's not how this works. Um, God can, um, God calls people into religious life. And he does this in a, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And he mentions specifically there um, in this text the gifts of knowledge, the gifts of fortitude, the gift of piety, and the gift of piety. Okay? And the gift of counsel. What he says is that when God calls you, into religious life. Follow me. Okay. Uh, you can re resist that. And people do that. And there in that commentary on 1 Thessalonians, Thomas is talking about that in Pauline terms. Paul talks about quenching the Spirit. And when Thomas comes to exegete that passage, he says, look, the Spirit prompts us and we can, there are many ways to describe how this works, because there, and there are many ways in which this works. But God does do this, and we can heed those promptings or ignore them. In order to heed them consistently, with pleasure and, and promptly, we need habitual dispositions. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit.
Um, just to go back to the distinction between um, the virtues as habits and then the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, you mentioned the supernatural, the infused virtues of faith, hope, and charity, um, and you know the connection where people would receive those um, with their baptism. And um, since they're infused, regular virtues as habits are, as you practice, like a violinist would practice, you have this element of like increasing in that virtue and um, having it change over time, like not just being a, like a quantity separate from yourself, but as you practice those virtues, um, like the moral virtues of it changing like your very person to say like, I don't just possess like prudence, but like, I am prudent. Um, so with those supernatural virtues, to my understanding, it's um, since they're infused virtues, there's that greater element of praying to receive the virtues and to maybe increase in the quality of those virtues. So I guess um, going back to that distinction, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, since they are um, like the moral virtues in being like a habit, like a fixed and stable disposition, can you describe how one would increase or decrease in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And if that is even possible, would that be through practice or lack of practice? sort of like the moral virtues, or would that be through um, maybe like that loss of grace that one would experience in um, mortal sin, which affects those supernatural virtues, or um, on the other hand, praying to receive them more almost like the way that we yeah. um, like sanctify Good. grace. Yeah. All right. So, okay. Acquired moral virtues. Think of that old analogy of the harp from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. If you play the harp well, you get better at the harp. If you play the harp poorly, you get worse at it. Now that's, I mean, if you carry that analogy out, what he's saying is, you're either getting better or worse at being a human being. Okay. Um, how do those, vir those virtues grow that are habits like um, the art of harp playing? They grow by exercise. Well, the infused moral virtues, the virtues of fortitude, justice, temperance, prudence, that come packaged with charity. Okay? They, they're infused with charity. Not, not as like as though they're contained in it. You can't have a habit in a habit, but there are habits that come with it, that grow out of it as a as as though from a root. Right. They do not increase merely by exercise because the exercise of the of the gratuitous or the graced virtues that God gives us never warrants or um, in the way that never warrants their increase so that God is required to increase them. When they increase it's always God who does the increase. And it's always by God's grace that we are made able to make use of those virtues and to dispose ourselves to their increase. But when, uh, when, when they do grow, it's, it's, as Paul says, the growth comes from God. Okay? 
The gifts of the Holy Spirit are like this. You're asking a question that that is putting his finger on one of those outer regions of Thomas's thought where you might have liked him to say more about something um, when he just hasn't gotten to it. Okay? But he does say talk, and we, we can infer from some very concrete things he does say, for example, about the relationship between the gift of fear and the gift of, and the, and the urge of charity. And I'm going to come at this pretty quick, so see if this, this, this helps. The gift of fear is the gift by which we we revere God and cling to God. Fear, you see, is um, a passion or of the soul or an affection of the will. Its object is some future evil that cannot be resisted or avoided. But in the gift, when it comes to the gift of fear, the thing feared isn't God, it's separation from God. Thomas calls it filial or chaste fear. It's and here's how it works. The more you come to love someone, the more you fear their loss or to be separated from them. It's not any kind of anxiety that dominates your, your um, thinking and feeling, but it's a kind of um, implication. It it's consequent to your love. And that's what, so the gift of fear is consequent to charity in that way. And as charity, the love of God grows. We so too does the gift of fear grow in a way that's proportionate. So if you imagine, look at my hand, it would just start getting bigger, you know, the palm of my hand bigger, and then you you expect the fingers to get bigger too. If charity is the palm of my hand, and the gifts are think I imagine I had seven fingers. Okay. <laughs> the gifts grow with the growth uh um, of charity in the way that my fingers would grow, we hope, with the, with the growth of my hand. And we hope my hand doesn't do that anymore. But. Okay, does that help? Okay, yes. Um, who's next? And, well, I'm sorry? Okay. Um, I saw your hand first, and then I'll come to you, Justin, and I apologize to whoever I'm missing. Oh, and then Matthias. Um, this is kind of a long question. I apologize. And please tell me if any descendants of it are like incorrect because I'm not super well versed. But so if virtue is a perfection of the will towards obedience to reason, but for a reason it's given to us by God, so there's only one true rationality, then can the virtues alone like dispose us towards like obedience to the divine inspiration? Because if there's only one true reason, if you're disciplining your will by the virtues, so it's not impede true reason, then can your can then can virtue alone like get you towards like yeah in the way that a gift would yeah no so I I love this you guys are so sharp you don't think you get stuff and then you get stuff and you've just asked a question that um, I mean you've just asked your way into a very heated dispute among um, Thomas. Okay? Um, I'm going to answer this question by talking about the gift of fortitude. All right? Um, the virtue of fortitude is the virtue by which it has two acts, endurance and uh, attack. 
it's hard to get that one in English too. What, what do I mean? Things are difficult and dangerous, and a lot of the time, indeed most of the time, you have to endure them. You have to carry on with your work despite difficulty and danger. And then every now and again, as reason dictates in the right circumstances, you have to not simply endure that difficulty and danger, you have to attack it. You have to con or contend with it in some way. Okay? You have to grapple with it. And um, the acquired virtue of fortitude enables us to do this with respect to those things that belong to our, what Thomas calls, co-natural final end. The, the good uh, or the, the good human life as reason can discover it with respect to um, the ordering of um, civic life and, and things like this. The infused virtue of fortitude uh, enables one to do that in a different register, all the, everything I just said in a different register, so that we, uh, that we can contend with difficulty and danger in pursuit not merely of our natural end, but of our supernatural end. You know, the only one in the end that really counts. I, I, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, that's where we're headed. We pray. Okay. Um, but the infused virtue of fortitude is, uh, because it's a perfection, uh, it's a perfection of um, the will and the irascible power, um, and it makes it obedient to reason as is perfected by prudence, infused prudence. Okay. But because we are nevertheless finite creatures, that we can't know everything. Um, we are, we are, even when, when um, perfected by God, uh, by these virtues, we are still liable to error, to different um, kinds of folly. I mean, this all finds us kind of in the middle of things, you know, I mean, we're being perfected and everyone has a different past and a different set of countervailing, lingering vices that they have to contend with. And those things get in the way of, of the reasoning that God empowers us to do by the virtues. And there are some circumstances, Thomas says, that are so difficult, some difficulties um, that are so genuinely trying. I mean, there are some sorrows in life that are like tidal wave kinds of sorrow where you're just treading water. And in those moments, we can be so um, overcome that it's like, you know, as St. Paul says, it's like the sorrow that works unto death. And we still have to keep going. And for that, you need the gift of fortitude. It's something that... Um, it, it infuses in us a kind of confidence, a kind of hope that, that God is with us, that he's our helper, that he doesn't hate us, that he loves us, we're his children. It, it um, suffuses our thinking and feeling with, um, a, with a, um, a, a kind of restful clinging to the promises of Scripture. 
And it's in virtue of that. I mean, go read, you know, think about the Apostle Paul. The guy's been shipwrecked. He gets bit by snakes. He gets put in prison again and again. He's abandoned, right? He's, I mean, it's just good. He's beaten. He's stoned. How does he keep going? Thomas says it's the gift of fortitude. Something beyond the virtue. That makes sense. I, I'm so, yeah, I don't know. I think Justin's next. I, I don't want to be responsible for the queue because I'm, I, I won't do a good job at it. So, Justin. <laughs> um, that was actually very related to the question I, I was asking, which I guess just, just to make it a little bit more explicit, um, it seems to me that the, the, the definition that Aquinas puts forth uh, for, for a gift in, in the Summa, different than his prior definitions, is very much. In different in kind than, than a virtue. Yes. Um, but but with, and I, for, for things like wisdom and, and fear especially, that really makes sense. But just to make it explicit, why is the gift of, of, of fortitude a different in kind than the infused virtue of fortitude and not just different in degree? Because it seems as though like a lot, a lot of the language yes. is just like, yeah. it goes beyond, you know, the gift of, of or it goes beyond the infused you know, virtue of fortitude, which seems to be a difference in, in degree and not, and not kind. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Justin's, he was, the beginning of his question was adverting to the fact that in Thomas's first attempt to describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he conceives them as operating in a mode beyond the human mode that the virtues equip us for. And that seems to have more to do with a difference of degree than kind. The difference in kind um, can be answered first with respect to just the kind of habit that a, a gift is. A, a virtue is an operative habit that we use when we, when we wish to use it. Okay? A gift is a disposition that makes us easily movable by divine prompting. Those are different. That's the difference at the most basic psychological level. Psychological in the old sense of the, you know, talking about the soul, what's in it, what's going on there, all right? Um, <clears throat> relatedly, um, think about it like this. Do you know the old logical problem of Buridan's ass? It, I mean a donkey. Uh, uh, I'm not being crass, that's just how it's described. Um, you have this old logical problem of a donkey that is stuck between two equidistant things. One is a pail of water and the other is a bale of hay. And being a donkey, the donkey has no rational uh, means by which to decide which of the direction it should go in because the, they're equally distant from him, and they're equally appetizing. And so the donkey dies of hunger and thirst. Now, you're not a donkey. Um, um, but nevertheless, there are moments in life where there's no bit of practical reasoning that will um, help us to discern which is the best thing to do, okay? I mean, sometimes you just 
you're faced with two courses. Both of them are difficult. And both of them are, uh, would be, would, they, they both command or elicit our desire. They, they, they captivate us in some way, but they also repel us in some way. And we, have, we can think about it, deliberate, and take counsel, and we just still don't know what to do. And in moments like this, you need uh, two gifts. You need the gift of counsel and the gift of fortitude. What the gift of counsel does, Thomas says, is um, it, it's not, in this instance, the prompting of the Holy Spirit isn't like some, you know, like, Abram, go to this land, I will send you. It's not like that. It's more what we call, he says, the, we call it a kind of a sense of peace. Thomas says that the Holy Spirit quells our anxiety or our fear about one path. So it's not so much telling us what to do as giving us an effective sense of, of, of peace about, about which way to go. That's a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And then we need the gift of fortitude um, in order to um, contend with um, those difficulties, which, um, which reason is simply insufficient to, um, to devise appropriate means for. I mean, what makes, when you, the, oh, let me just think about this. I mean, when you stand for the truth of the gospel in contexts of hostility and difference, um, when you're doing this in a context where there's a lot at stake, what if I say what I'm about to say or what I think I ought to say and this professor from whom I'm hoping to get a letter of recommendation dismisses me, he, I'm outed. He, real, he, you know, I can't hide anymore. He knows I'm, a, I'm one of those wackos. I mean, what in that moment could you think that would tell you, oh, it's going to be okay? You don't know. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. You don't, I mean, you, and if we rely simply on our own foresight, on our own wisdom, on, you know, our own sense of how things will turn out for us, um, precisely because we can't see that things will be okay, we what? We remain silent. The gift of fortitude is the virtue, is the gift by which God infuses a kind of confidence, even in the, in the face of difficulties uh, that we can't see our way around. Thank you, Professor Randall. Um, I wanted to ask about the kind of quenching that you can, I guess, do to kind of stifle the spirit. And you see, Thomas talks about, like, if there's an, an impulse to do something generous of the Holy Spirit, or even when some generous inclination arises, so I guess the way I was interpreting it was kind of thinking of, I think of very many situations where I feel a generous impulse, generous impulse to do something, but then it turns out, actually, no, I can't do that thing, or actually, no, I actually shouldn't do that thing. Yeah. For whatever reason, like, prudence kind of dictates that. But I'll sometimes I kind of feel a sense, I'll still feel anxiety if I still try and shut, like, the generosity down, because, like, I guess I cancel it with this, like, oh, I'm being so prudent. No, I don't need to, like, I turn that into, 
I don't need to care as much about, I guess, that thing. So I guess is there a way in the sense in which we have to, in order to let the spirit continue to grow in us, not stifle generous inclinations, even if it doesn't terminate in a concrete action? Okay. Good. You see, the gifts of the Holy Spirit do not supplant the work of the virtues. They perfect them. So you might, just as a kind of a natural disposition, what Thomas sometimes calls uh, your spiritual complexion, you might have an inclination to give your stuff away. Just You might be open-handed in that way. And like, have you read um, East of Eden? That's a page turner. There's a man in East of Eden who, uh, Jacob Trask, he gives everything away. I love him, but he's a fool. Okay? It's no part, it can be no part of wisdom or of any virtue whatsoever to act in a way that's contrary to reason. Okay? So you may, so we always, we always test and discern uh, the, our, the promptings that we experience. And what Thomas is saying there in that passage is actually quite interesting. He's, he's, he's not equivocating, but he's speaking rather broadly. He's saying, look, there are promptings of the Holy Spirit, and then sometimes there are just these inclinations that arise within us. And um, it would be quenching the Spirit if, say, I um, were prompted to give something away, and then I, you know, in a kind of golem-like fashion, you know, I don't want to give that away. I don't want to give that away. I don't want to give my time away. I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to be rid of these things that I don't need. Um, I mean, there, but there's something, that's something different. But again, I mean, there are rational considerations that would, that would count toward weighing whether, in fact, you're being prompted by the Spirit. Yeah. I guess, how do you then, like, I guess, I guess it's something that just comes with growth, but knowing when you're not, when something is contrary to reason and not the prompting of the spirit, and then when something is, like, kind of like when you described with fortitude, something that your reason can't see or that you can't have with human foresight, and you have to say, okay, I got to trust this. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, there's a great story from the Labellus of Jordan of Saxony, which is the earliest account we have of St. Dominic in the beginning of the Order of Preachers. And it's a story about St. Dominic at the outset of the order, and he has, he's just now begun to gather a, uh, a team of, of really promising young men around him. And at just that moment where things are starting to gel, he says, all right, you go to Bologna, you go to Paris, you go, to, uh, you go here, you go here, you go here. And they all go, what are you talking about? Uh, that sounds disastrous. We are just getting going. And St. Dominic says, uh, no, this is what, this is what, this is the next thing for us. This is where God's leading us next. And um, Jordan of Saxony, who's 
Dominic's successor says of Dominic that he is um, he was willing to entertain um, the Spirit's promptings even against um, those who cling to the wisdom of this world. Um, yeah, so there are times in life where God will ask things of you without showing you what's around the corner. And if God's going to do that, this is the Thomistic intuition, then God um, will also give you the habitual dispositions that you need in order to follow that prompting, um, even despite your insufficiency to to see where it will will lead. And those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think Father Corbett wanted to say something on this point. No, okay, well, in that case, let me me just say one quick thing, because this is a really important and interesting question. Uh, We are running a little long, but that's okay. We have a long break. and it seems to me like people are interested, it's fair to say people are interested in this subject. Um, so, I mean, just as, by way of supplementing or adding to, amplifying um, what Adam just said, I think sometimes God prompts us to do things uh, that exceed the measure of uh, what reason would be able to judge, but he's not going to ask us to do something that is directly contrary to what reason would allow us to Yes, do. right. And so um, reason might not be able to get you there uh, by itself, but it shouldn't be something that's totally like crazy in the, in the worst sense of that word, although it might be crazy by a worldly mentality. So like God could prompt someone here who say has had an impressive university career and has worked really hard to get into graduate school and maybe has a job offer from the perfect the perfect place where you know he or she has always wanted to be and then receives the inspiration maybe I'm called to enter a religious life and to leave all of it behind and from a worldly mentality you might say well that's crazy like you worked so hard you paid all this money you devoted years of your life why would you give all of that away to follow Christ. And so if you judged purely on a worldly, you know, if you didn't consider the supernatural dimension of that of that vocation, that call, you would say, well, you shouldn't do that. And that's crazy. And people do say that to young people thinking about a vocation. But St. Thomas would obviously say, um, if God is calling you, you should go. Even though you don't actually know where you're going to go. And it does mean giving up all these things you've worked so hard for. But those things are going to be less than whatever God is, is asking you to do. It's different than God uh, calling you, you know, or thinking, maybe God is calling me to, like, um, go set myself on fire in front of the Supreme Court, you know. <laughs> there are actually people who, who, who tried to do things like that. And they might have thought that God was calling them to that. Now, I think we could say with certitude, God's not calling you to that. That's a, that is crazy. <laughs> But people sometimes confuse, like, what might colorably be claimed to be a supernatural inspiration to do something that's contrary to reason, as if that was the same as God calling you to, like, a supernatural vocation, which is compatible with. So, I think, the, you know, to, get, yes. to divide the, the, the close calls, you know, there are, are maybe a little, a little harder. 
Father Corbett now does want to say something. Thought I had was this. Do you think that the genuine exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit can only be judged retrospectively? I mean, there, there are ten people, nine of them may get a feeling to call to leave graduate school and to join a religious order. Uh, one of those ten finds happiness, evangelical fulfillment, the grace of God flowing on all sides and all that. Nine of them end up with a lot of debt uh, and nothing much else. Could you, because they were booted out of their religious order that they joined, they discovered personality quirks or something like that. <laughs> Which most of us have. <laughs> so, uh, what about that? Would you say that we can't really know whether something is irrapid, beyond reason, or not, until we've had a chance to see it run its course? Yeah. This man was a saint in following the Holy Spirit of God. This person was not, but we only judge it looking backwards. Would you say that's true or, or not? I, I want to answer that question from my own personal um, experience as I've tried to understand my own life and to, and to order my life um, as in accordance with this, the gifts as I've, been, uh, as I've been trying to explain them. I think one of the most difficult things for me has been uh, detaching my expectations uh, of what it means, of, of what will happen when we follow the Spirit's prompting. I'm writing, I've been writing this book. I think the Lord prompted me to do it. Um, I very naively uh, thought, um, well, if the Lord's prompted me to do this, I mean, I didn't represent it to myself this way, but I must have been thinking this, I discovered, retrospectively. Yeah. Well, if the Lord prompted me to do this, then this will be easy. <laughs> What's going on? This is hard. Um, all of my colleagues think I'm nuts. Um, it's taking a long time. Uh, I don't understand this. Um, the measures of success and the expectations that we that we bring along with ourselves when we respond to the Spirit's prompting. Um, I think in God's patience with us, they are pared down along the way. Um, so, I, to answer your question most succinctly, I think the answer, um, in, in at least many instances, will be maybe yes. Um, and I would only add that that retrospection may be a retrospection uh, from the vantage of eternity. We just, um, you know, the Bible is basically one great big book of people who listen to God's call without knowing where it would lead, and in many cases without knowing what it would amount to, and never in this on this terrestrial globe finding out what it would amount to. Um, and the fruits of our work. 
uh, the fruit of your work um, with the Thomistic Institute, um, the labor, uh, the vineyard that you're, um, that you're toiling in, um, will yield fruit, but it's for our good in many instances that you often don't see the fruit of it. Sometimes you do, but in many instances, in most cases, you don't. And I think in that respect, yes, I, but even, I guess I'd only add, sometimes, even looking back, it, it, I mean, we can have a sense for, wow, I just, I can't wait to figure out what that was all about. Does that, does that yeah, yeah. resonate with you? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think we probably are going to have to call it to a conclusion. Okay. Um, but let me, let me uh, impose on all of your kindness by just one further, I mean, because I think we've, we've gotten to a really interesting point, and there's maybe one additional layer of distinctions that I'm going to try to articulate very quickly, which is God might call you, you might think God is calling you to do something which is directly contrary to reason, or which is a sin, like, you know, commit suicide by burning yourself in the substance. Okay, that's, yeah, don't and that's do obviously that. out. Yeah. Like, that's don't never, do that. God will never call you to do that. <laughs> Um, and that's a deception. Okay, but then you might have this inspiration, well, I should leave all, all my worldly things behind and go to follow Christ in a radical way in religious life. And I think that it very well could be that God is calling you to that. Um, and if that's the case, then you should follow him. What about the case where he's, you, know, you have two choices of religious forms of religious life that you could follow? Neither of them are a sin. Um, and you're trying to figure out which one would be better for me. Or maybe even one of them is pretty experimental. Like, um, well, there's no religious order that really does what I think most needs to be done. And I think God is calling me to, like, um, you know, just, like, imitate uh, some of these great saints who are founders of religious orders and found my own religious order. So I'm going to basically live as a, as a homeless man um, in front of the Supreme Court uh, to bear witness to, you know, the dignity of human life or something like that. Um, and... Uh, someone says to you, but you're not going to have health insurance, and you're not, where are you going to eat, and how are you, like, they're going to kick you off the property, and what are you going to do then? And you say, well, I don't know what God's going to provide. Okay, so, now, is it possible that God's calling you to that? Yeah, it's not, it's not impossible, but it's probably a little unlikely. And it's probably not wise to just do that rationally, unless there's a pretty good sign from God that that's what he wants you to do. And so the church has a whole tradition of like discerning those kinds of things. Because individuals can have a hard time figuring that stuff out. And that's why it's important to take counsel from a wise, you know, from someone with wisdom in the spiritual tradition to look at what the church has established as norms for religious life, for example. Um, and that can really be very helpful and very important. Because some people inspired by great zeal can have misguided zeal in the sense of like, well, I'm just going to join this religious community, which actually is not following canon law, and is like, has no structure or provision for its members. And so, I've known people who've done this with great generosity of spirit, and ended up really hurt by it, because the thing just collapses, and the, the founder was, was crazy, and, you know, like, um, there, there's a reason why the church tries to exercise some governance and judgment about these kinds of things. So that's also a, an important part of the picture, that you, in a way, submit yourself to a larger community of judgment. And the church has a structure for doing that.